What a gang. <laughs> I am Elsa, and I'm a very, very grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I just wish that, that I had something to say. I feel it completely... <laughs> I feel completely devoid this morning. I don't know. Uh, sometimes my uh, better judgment gets in the way, and I say, why in the hell didn't you stay home? This <laughs> oh, my. I have, I have so many friends here, and I uh, was here a long, long time ago with Chuck, as you all know. And I'm glad to be back because I, I love the people here, and I love this area. And I just wish that, <laughs> that my head would work. So uh, if you will say a little prayer for me and say there's something there that you need to share, for God's sake, get busy and share it. You know your own story better than anybody, and you just get up and tell it. And you know the funny part of it is that that is a little thing that Chuck said to me a heck of a lot of years ago, a lot of years ago, when uh, he had been talking for some time everywhere, and I hadn't opened my mouth yet. <laughs> they asked me all of a sudden one day to talk at one of the meetings for ten minutes before Chuck, and it scared the living daylights out of me. And I told Chuck, I said, I, I've tried every way in the world to think of something. I've tried to write a talk. Ten-minute talk. And I can't get anything down on paper that sounds good enough to get up before these people. And he said, you know what's the matter with you, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. He said, you want this. (laughs) He knew me pretty well. And that's exactly what was the matter with me. And he told me at that time, he said, you know your own story better than anybody. All you have to do is get up and tell it and not care what they think. And that's the best piece of advice that I have ever gotten from anybody. And if there are any new important, you know your own story better than anybody. So I'll try and tell it a little bit today. Chuck and I were married a heck of a long time ago. And I'm going to tell something today that I don't usually tell in these meetings. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have ever heard me tell how I met Chuck in the first place. This is kind of interesting. (laughs) Because, you see, I was, uh, I'm crazy, you know. (laughs) If I I was an alcoholic, I'd be crazier than the craziest alcoholic you've got. But uh, I'm awful close to being like you, but except that booze doesn't do for me what it does for you. But at any rate, uh, here I am, a kid in high school. That's where I usually like to start because I wanted to do a lot of things that I wasn't able to finish. And uh, (laughs) maybe it was because of Chuck that I never got a chance to finish him. But maybe it's just as well, because I think if I had ever had the chance to finish what I started out to do, I would have gone this way and stayed that way. But it was, it was, it went this way. You know what I mean? And that's the way it was. But at any rate, I uh, I had a very wonderful mother. 
She was quite a prominent singer, singer in uh, her day. She uh, had a magnificently beautiful voice. She was a beautiful woman. And uh, she was one of the first Merry Widows in New York. If any of you have ever seen the operetta, The Merry Widow, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, <coughs> she, was, uh, she was playing the second lead in New York, as I recall it, when I was just a little kid. And uh, the widow suddenly got a very bad case of laryngitis, the one who played the widow. And she was the understudy, and she had to take the part of the widow. And for some reason or other, she made a tremendous hit. And there were uh, Henry Savage at that time. If any of you are old enough to remember the old impresario in New York, Henry Savage, was the, the manager for her in those days. I go a long way back. I was born in, in 1902. Is there anybody here older than I am? <laughs> I uh, hurry to tell you I don't feel that old. <laughs> but I am, and I'm stuck with it. So that <laughs> But she made a tremendous hit, and... Uh, uh, the thing that is interesting to me, because it goes along with my own feelings so thoroughly, was that she uh, had such an ovation when she sang the, the lead, the part of the widow. And there were, in those days, they had the, the chorus girls were called ponies. And they were the dancers and the singers in the chorus line. And uh, there was a lot of backbiting <coughs> And competition amongst them in those days, as there always is in a theatrical thing. And uh, for some reason or other, she was too sensitive to put up with it. And she could hear all of this stuff going on, the competition and the backbiting and the making fun of each other and trying to upset the other fella. And she broke a five-year contract and came home. Now, that's uh, where I got my start. So, uh, you can... <laughs> You can see why I uh, probably have broken a few contracts myself. <laughs> but at any rate, here we are in Los Angeles, and we move uh, all of a sudden to uh, to Beverly Hills. And this, this is the start that I got, because this was during the one of the first <clears throat> really bad depressions that we had in Southern California. And uh, nobody had any money, really. My father was in the real estate business, and, of course, real estate just went to hell in a handbasket in those days. And we took, my mother took, uh, and father took the uh, uh, hotel where we were going to live uh, to, uh, as managers <clears throat> for the time being. And that's where I started, and that's where I grew up, in Beverly Hills. <clears throat> I think that we are, we are. I don't know whether it's your weather or my nervousness that has caused my voice to go to hell in a handbasket, but <laughs> thank you, sir. I'm a little nuts if you want to know the truth. <clears throat> and here we are in Beverly Hills, and I was thinking this morning about one story that I don't know that I have ever told. And I don't know whether my youngest son would appreciate my telling it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> I can remember so well <clears throat> when we were 
managing this apartment in Beverly Hills, and we were, uh, I got up one morning, and I couldn't find Richard. He was a little guy, oh, maybe three, four years old, not more than that. And he was gone from the apartment, and I finally discovered that the bedroom window was open, and the little devil had climbed out the window, and all of a sudden the phone rang, and it was the police. And they said, uh, do you have a son uh, with blonde, blue eyes, any sleepers that are pretty wet? <laughs> and I said, have you got him? He said, we've got him. He was up at the school. We had been up to the school the day before, and he remembered how to get there. We were about four or five blocks from the school. He said he was caught in the middle of the slide because he said, <laughs> wet sleepers and he said we've got him here at the police station you can come and get him anytime (laughs) this is the kind of a guy he was he was always (laughs) he was always going places and meeting people and doing things and uh, I've lost him at the beach and I've lost him at home and uh, that was the beginning of Richard. <laughs> that he was bound to do something. So uh, that was our start. And it <laughs> I'll get stuck on this story if I'm not careful. And I'll be here, <laughs> I'll be here all day. <laughs> See if I can get an audience that will laugh with me. I'm I'm done. <laughs> but at any rate. Uh, time finally came. Uh, Chuck and I had been married for some time then, of course. But, uh, I just want to tell you one other thing, because I think it's kind of funny. The way I met Chuck is rather strange. I don't know any of you have heard this one or not. But I, uh, was quite a swimmer in my young, early days, and I spent quite a bit of my time at the beach always in the summertime. And I was always borrowing my mother's car, and she never had it when she wanted it, because I was always off with it. I'm an only child, incidentally. Are there any other only children in the room? There's one of <laughs> There are a few. There are never very many. All of you have brothers and sisters. I don't know how that works, but it, uh, it does. <clears throat> so here I am, an only child. And I... <laughs> I uh, Always bought my gasoline <clears throat> at the uh, standard station that was not very far from my house. And I went in this one day, and this very, very handsome guy came out to fill my tank. And in those days, they uh, uh, didn't weren't grease monkeys like they are today. He had on this spanking white uniform with an overseas cap with the bill, you know, regular officer's cap. And he was brown as a berry and the handsomest thing I've ever laid eyes on. And he walked out and uh, wanted to fill my tank. And I look at him and I thought, my God, that's a good-looking man. And he never even gave me an I yes or didn't even look at me. And he filled my tank and I went to pain and I'd forgotten my purse. <laughs> I'd left my purse at home. And I couldn't pay for my gasoline, and I was so embarrassed I thought I'd die. 
And I said, I'm sorry, I just live a few blocks from here. If you trust me, I'll go right home and get my purse and be right back. And he very nonchalantly said, oh, don't worry about it. And he turned around and walked off because he thought I was pulling a fast one on him. And I went right home and got my purse and came right back. And then he looked at me. (laughs) Or we looked at each other, I should say. And uh, we began to converse occasionally then, as you do in your younger days, you know. And I was always on the way to the beach. And he said, uh, I can't swim. He said, I come from Indiana. And we lived near a a creek. And he said, I I paddled in the creek. But I've never really learned to swim. Would you teach me to swim? (laughs) This is so young and so... (laughs) So sweet. <laughs> oh, what a man he was. <laughs> we started going to the beach, and I uh, tried my darndest to teach him to swim. I don't know whether I really did or not. But I'll never forget the one day that really sticks out in my mind. It was one of those days when all of a sudden out where the the uh the thing was where you go out and swim too, uh, all of a sudden these huge breakers began to break out there. And they were big ones, and every one of them I had to dive because I couldn't go over them. They were too huge. And uh I'd come up from one and look around and I couldn't find shut. And then I'd have to dive another one and I'd come up and look around and no shut. And after about the third wave, I finally looked in on the beach, and there he was standing on the beach waving at me. <laughs> He'd ridden the first one in. <laughs> he couldn't swim, but he could do something that I wasn't very good at doing. I wasn't very good at, at uh, riding breakers. I could swim and go under them, but I couldn't ride them in. That was the beginning of the Chamberlain romance. <laughs> anyway, but that, uh, enough of that nonsense. <laughs> you didn't come here to hear all these crazy stories, I'm sure. The time finally came when I knew that there was something wrong with our marriage. And I think every woman in here that was a non-alcoholic or an alcoholic, I don't think it really makes any difference if you're married to an alcoholic. To begin to see that there's something crazy going on here, something haywire, and you can't quite put your finger on it because in those days we didn't know what alcoholism was. We had no idea. And uh, <clears throat> it was long before the AA program, of course, in this day. And uh, we try every way in the world to do something about it. And I can remember so well that I would say, but Chuck, can't you see? That your drinking is doing something to you that I don't like. It's changing you. You're not yourself. Oh, he said, let me alone, baby. I know exactly what I'm doing. How many of you men have said that to your wives? Let me alone, baby. I know exactly what I'm doing. And he thought he did. But since alcoholism is a progressive illness, and it gets worse and worse as time goes on, The same thing happened to us, and the time finally came with Chuck and me when it seemed to me that I couldn't hack it any longer. You see, because we had these two kids by this time, and, uh, of course, Bill and Dick were six years apart, and uh, 
It was a little difficult. And I began <clears throat> to see that this thing was getting worse and worse and that he was becoming something that I didn't like, I couldn't stand. If any of you have lived with a bed drinker, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the bed drinkers don't get up to do anything until they run out of booze. And uh, how in the world he got his booze sometimes, I will never be able to figure out. But I found out later on that he had a, a boy at the uh, drugstore, not so awfully far from us, that would bring and bring it to him and put it through the window. Any of you have that uh, experience? At any rate, the time finally came, as it does with all of us, when you no longer can handle what you're up against. And no matter how much you love somebody, the way they have changed is something that takes that love and throws it out the window because they become something that you can't recognize little by little by little, something totally different than the man that you fell in love with in the first place. All of the sweetness and all of the gentleness went out the window, and it seemed as though he had become another person. And that, I guess, is what every one of us have had to go through. But at any rate, I finally got to the place where I knew I was going to have to do something. And I started uh, the business school to try to learn some way to earn my own living, because I had no training to work. And uh, along with that, I also had the temerity, I guess you might say, or I, I forced myself to do this, I guess more than anything, to start divorce proceedings. Something I didn't want to do, but I felt as though I had to, because it had become much too difficult to put up with. And uh, in the meantime, he was progressing, as all alcoholics do. So... I will never forget the morning that I told him what I was going to do. He was sitting over on the couch, and I was sitting over here on the chair. And I will never forget the astounded look on his face when I told him that I had started divorce proceedings and that I was all done. Because, you see, I had threatened time and time and time again, and I imagine many of you have done the same thing, but did not have the courage to follow up the threat. And I, I just, I can still see the astounded look on his face when I think about that. But you know, the funny part of it was that it wasn't very long after that that he came to me and he said, what was the name of that man out in San Fernando Valley that you told me about in AA? And I gave him the number and he tried to call the number and the man was out of town. And he wasn't due to be back for quite a little while. But strangely enough, Something had happened to Chuck because on his own, he went to a meeting in San Fernando Valley there at the club. A lot of you, if you know Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley, you know where the club is out in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I can remember him telling that he would back up to a couple or three people that were talking what he thought was pretty good AA, and back up to them and listen in. And if they'd, <laughs> if they'd catch him, he'd go off and back up to somebody else. He was very, very shy about it in those days. And uh, 
But I began to notice a little change in Chuck. And strangely enough, for some crazy reason, and I still don't know why, I stopped the divorce proceedings, and I <laughs> I stopped everything else. And I just stood there and watched to see what would happen because I knew something was different. Something had changed. And the funny part of it was that he finally admitted that he was doing something about his drinking. And he asked me to go to a meeting with him, which was um, uh, not very far from where we were living there in Beverly Hills. And uh, <laughs> I can remember as well as if it was yesterday. It was a room about the size of this. Huge room. And there was a balcony, quite a high balcony. And all the non-alcoholics were sitting up there in that balcony. <laughs> we didn't have anything to do with the AAs. They didn't, they didn't like us in those days. They uh, went around us every chance they got. And I can remember as if it was yesterday, the time that I finally, after going to a couple or three of those meetings, got enough courage to go down and speak to one of the alcoholic women on the floor down there. And she practically fell on my neck because she thought I was sitting up there looking down my nose at her. And I know that they were all thinking that <laughs> we were all thinking that they were looking down their noses at us because we had nothing in common in those days. Nothing. This was long before Al-Anon, of course. <laughs> I go back a heck of a long way. So, at any rate, uh, the time finally came. When uh, all of a sudden we heard that uh, Bill and Lois, that Lois was coming to the coast and she was going to speak at uh, one of the, at the old 6300 club. Are any of you old enough to remember the old 6300 club in Los Angeles? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. But at any rate... Uh, we all decided, we women decided to go and hear her talk because we wanted to know what she had that we needed. And uh, we went there and listened avidly, and she lit a fire in all of us that just beat anything that you ever heard of. And we all got together and decided, by golly, we've got to do something about this. We've got to start a meeting because she had told about the meetings that there were going on in the East. This is clear out in California, you know, down in Southern California at that. And uh, I, at that time, started the meeting in my own home. And there were two or three others that started meetings in their homes also. And uh, we had to learn by guess and by gosh, by trial and error and by experience and its lessons, because we had absolutely nothing to go on in those days except what Lois had told us when she talked to us. We still had to hear from Bill. We hadn't heard from him yet. And uh, these were quite remarkable days because we, uh, uh, we learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, but we began to learn a lot of the things that we could do that would be helpful for each other and to, I think, a lot of our traditions, and the things that we have come up with in these later years started at that time out of a tremendous need 
to do something about the family situation. And we knew we could see that all the families were breaking up and were divorcing and going their own way. And uh, the children were beginning to suffer so terribly. And I can remember so well when Alateen first started. And uh, it, uh, I could spend all morning telling you about a lot of these things, but I have to skip around a little bit and not go into it too deeply. But the time finally came, of course, when we uh, sold our home in Beverly Hills and moved to Laguna Beach, where we live today. Of course, a lot of things had changed by that time. We had, uh, after having managed that apartment house for so long, we finally were able to buy a house in Beverly Hills. And this will kill you. We bought it for $6,000. That's right. <laughs> it's a long time ago, kid. And, uh, <laughs> so we finally were able to buy this house in Laguna Beach where we live today. And that's a horse of another color because, you see, when we finally moved down there, uh, there was no Al-Anon in Laguna Beach. In fact, there was only one AA meeting at that time. And there was one AA meeting in Corona del Mar, if any of you know that area, which is about six miles north of us. And one in Santa Ana, a lot of you probably know where that is, inland. And that was it. There was nothing else in the, uh, in the AA or Al-Anon in that area at that, that time at all. And <laughs> things began to get going then, finally, little by little by little. And I started another meeting in my home. And uh, I, you see, I had learned in Beverly Hills that it was possible to do something in your own home if you wanted to. And it started maybe with one or two of us. And then there were three, and then there were only me, and then there were two, and then there were three, and then there were five, and then all of a sudden it began to grow. And it grew, and it grew, and it outgrew the house. And that's the way this program does, if you are working at it. And uh, fortunately, we had enough experience from what had transpired in uh, in Beverly Hills that we had a little knowledge of what we were trying to do. And uh, we moved to the club in Laguna Beach and uh, finally got so noisy there. There was, uh, It was right on the, the uh, big ro- uh, roadway, Coast Boulevard, and uh, we finally decided that we needed to do something about it and we all of a sudden realized that we were going to have to try to get a good place for our meeting. And we went to the church where we are today and uh, we've been there for a lot of years now. And the meeting has grown and grown and grown. And it's a beautiful, beautiful meeting because, you see, we have learned by trial and error, by experience and its lessons, and by love. And I think that's the bottom line. Because everybody that has come to that meeting, I think, has felt the sharing and the love that we feel towards these new people that were coming in more and more and more and more often. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing for a gal like me, who's been around so long, to sit back and look at what's happening in that area there. And it's, uh, the, of course, the meetings are spreading like wildfire. 
And it's uh, now Al-Anon is everywhere in Southern California. It's all over the place. And some of it's good and some of it's not so hot. But uh, at least according to my idea, you know, and that's uh, <laughs> you can't tell just the hard way. If you're willing to do the things that this program tells you to do, and I can remember so well when I first started that meeting, I was still hiding behind a uh, picture, I guess you might say, of myself, because, you see, I had uh, had some experience that made it possible for me to get some ego built up in this head of mine, and that's dangerous. Don't ever let yourself do it because it'll kill you eventually. And uh, they had in Southern California at that time <clears throat> what they called the Shakespearean contest. And you go out for your school, and if you, uh, incidentally, I went to Hollywood High. Do any of you know anything about Hollywood High? <laughs> That'll tell a story on me. <laughs> Hollywood High School. Oh, boy, what a place. <laughs> it was a wonderful school, really. And we had a lot of crazies in that school, too, They're like me. And uh, <laughs> I'll lose my train of thought if I'm not awfully careful here. But at any rate, uh, no, I just wanted to tell you something that sounds like bragging, but I don't mean it as bragging at all. It's experience. And it's something that I need to tell you because it has to do with the, my thinking processes, I think, more than anything. But uh, one of my friends dared me to try out for one of the plays at Hollywood High. And much against my better judgment, but I'm the kind of a person, don't dare me to do anything because I'm apt to do it. So just be careful what you dare me to do. I'm that kind of a nut anyway. And uh, so much against my better judgment, I tried out for the doggone thing and got the part. And I surprised everybody, even my own mother. I went home and told my mother that I'd gotten this part in the play. And she said, oh, you can't do that. You know what that did for me? (laughs) I was determined to do that part if it was the last thing I ever did. And... uh, we won the uh, the school. I won the went out for the city and won the city, and went up to Berkeley University and won the state. And that did something for me that nothing else under God's green earth could have done because it taught me how to put up a front. Do any of you know anything about that? <laughs> it's dangerous. Be careful. <laughs> But it did. It taught me how to act a part. And I did that for a lot of years. And it wasn't until I started that meeting in Laguna Beach in my own home and then moved down to the club when things began to happen that showed me that I was off on the wrong track. And uh, this group, these groups and the program will do that for you if you are trying to do something about it yourself. And uh, (laughs) but finally got hold of me, and they said, uh, but Elsa, you told us this. But Elsa, you said that. You're not practicing what you preach. 
And any time that your group comes up to you and is that honest with you, you better do something about it because it'll destroy you if you don't. But they did something for me that I wouldn't take a million dollars for. They began to show me that I had been acting a part all of these years and that for the first time in my life I had to let go of this nonsense and become just me. Good, bad, or indifferent, just me. And for the first time in my life, I began to get comfortable with me. And it was no longer necessary for me to impress you or do something wonderful to make you think how great I am. And uh, I think my mother helped me a lot on that, too, because she was a great lady. And uh, I wish that I could have gone on to do what she had done, but uh, uh, it was not necessary for me and uh, you see I told you that we had two sons we had them six years apart as I said and by this time they were pretty well grown and all of a sudden my eldest uh, who was back east at Indiana University finally uh, had to go into the Navy because it was during wartime, and it was time that our kids were all leaving for something. And uh, Bill, who was the eldest, he's six years older than Richard, and uh, he went into the Navy and was doing very well. And uh, But I didn't know what to do about Richard, because I didn't think that he would be interested in anything like this. And the first thing I knew, the crazy kid was... Uh, in the army and uh, he went overseas with the he was over in Korea and uh, had quite some experience over there and uh, so I became quite proud of both of these boys because they both stood up on their own two feet and did the things that they knew were necessary for them to do and here I am in the meantime uh, with Chuck and Chuck at that time, had finally gotten back in business, which was, uh, as most of you know, a food market business. And uh, he was doing very, very well in that business at this time. And uh, he finally decided to retire. Uh, any of you women that have lived with a husband that has been in business for many, many years that has all of a sudden decided to retire know exactly what I'm talking about. It's hell on wheels, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> if there's anything worse than a man who has been so busy all the time, because you see, Chuck and I, as I told you before, we have to do all of these things. The thing that I have had to see, and see so clearly, and I've had to learn it the hard way, is that we were like two railroad tracks going along in this life, separately but together, because you've got the ties going back and forth, you see, that hold the two railroads together. But Chuck used to remind me, but Mama, don't you see that way off in the distance, they come together. And I think that that's what eventually happened with us. Because we had a lot of very, very wonderful years after he had retired because he was so busy in this program. And uh, when he finally got into AA, 
it was fantastic what happened to him because he, uh, as most of you know, became a very well-loved and very... You don't have to forgive me if I have a little pride in that uh, area, too, because I think he was quite a wonderful man. But that isn't the whole story, either. What time is this meeting over? (laughs) How much time have I got? I'll keep you here all day if you're not careful. (laughs) But uh, he was doing his bit, and I was doing my bit down in Laguna in the Al-Anon program. And uh, then, as I say, we finally get together now and then, here and there. And uh, I began to put a little pressure on Chuck to slow down. And uh, he tried. He tried very desperately to slow down, but he couldn't make it. And uh, I can remember so well, Christmas came along, and uh, we had all the kids for a Christmas dinner. And... Uh, strange part of it was that he was going to have to go and talk at an AA meeting right after we'd finished Christmas dinner. This was the usual, you know. He's always gone somewhere talking. And uh, I can remember so well that uh, <laughs> it makes me laugh when I think about it because I was so, we are so wide open to hurt. If you're as sensitive <laughs> as I am, I think uh, and see he was sensitive too you put two sensitive people together and you've got trouble if you're not awfully careful because each one is trying to reach the other one and we don't seem to make it and we kind of cross ourselves up somewhere along the line and neither one of us pleases the other one because we don't do it quite exactly like we think they ought to and if we try to tell them so, we're in trouble, believe me. And I tried to do that on numerous occasions, and so did he. And uh, so we had some problems along the way. And uh, the thing that I think I would like to tell you, and I have been telling this lately because I'm afraid that I run into too many people who come up against the same problems that we did. And maybe I can help you find a way to get around the situation that I'm going to tell you about. Some way with this program, you can do a lot of things that you couldn't do any other way. (coughs) The 12 steps of this program will do something for you that nothing else under God's green earth can do. This I have found out and this I know to be a fact. So if you will believe me when I tell you that it is possible to get around these things, maybe you'll try it if you're in the same situation that I was in. Because there is something strange about the illness, sickness of this crazy body of ours that will affect our thinking if we will allow it to. And uh, Chuck... After retirement, uh, we'd go on these long, long walks up and down the hill. We lived way up on a hill in Laguna Beach, looking down on the ocean in Catalina Island, a perfectly beautiful spot to be in. And we loved it very, very dearly. But he would take these walks down the hill and back up and then up the back steps and up to the house. And then finally it got to the place where he could no longer do this, and he was becoming less and less able 
to uh, do this walking because Chuck had uh, emphysema, and uh, that is a deadly disease, a deadly, deadly disease. And I don't think that they have really found out any way to do anything about it. But any time, Hannah, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I would warn all of you smokers that <laughs> it'll get you eventually if you keep on smoking, because that's what it did to him, and it came just that close to doing it to me. So I know exactly what I'm talking about. But at any rate, the time finally came with us when... Uh, <clears throat> Chuck had to give up and get, and be taken around. I had to have three nurses around the clock because he was a very sick man. And uh, he uh, he loved that spot up there, and the nurse would take him out on the porch in his wheelchair where he could see the view and enjoy the sunshine. And uh, he was as brown as a berry all the time because he loved the sun so much. And uh, the time finally came when I could no longer uh, be the nice, sweet little wife that I uh, usually had been. And uh, I didn't uh, react very easily or very well to Chuck, and I lost my temper on several occasions. And this, I'm, I'm telling this for one reason and one reason only, because to warn you, any of you wives or husbands, I don't think it makes a bit of difference, that there is no way that you and I can live and lose our temper because a sick person is reacting a way in which you would not, would he would ordinarily not act, would not do the things that he would do or would say. Because this has to do with the oxygen that he has in his lungs. And when the oxygen did not get up here in his head, he was acting as though he was drinking. And it just drove me up the wall. This made me crazy, absolutely crazy. And I did a lot of things and said a lot of things that I'd give a million dollars if I could take them back. But once said, this is the hell of it. Once said, it's said, and you can't take it back. And I wish that I could have had the ability to straighten this thing out completely before Chuck died. But I was not able to, and I have to tell this because I have had to learn to forgive myself since he died, which has not been a very easy thing to do. And I can remember, as well as if it was yesterday, when he, all of a sudden, before he got up one morning, the nurse was in there getting ready to get him ready to get out of bed. And he said, oh, God, oh, God, take me away, take me away. And very quietly and very easily, she brought him into his chair, and he sat there. And I can remember as well as if it was yesterday, little by little by little, he just left. There was no pain. There was no agony. He just disappeared. The dumbest thing I ever saw. And I sat there, and I, see, I knew it was something was going on, and I called Bill. And I said, Bill, get over here. Get over here in a hurry. Something's going on with your dad, and I need you here. And he came, and the two of us were standing there holding Chuck's hand as he left. And uh, I probably shouldn't tell you these things, but I think if if I can 
get anybody to understand what it is to get yourself out of this god-awful thing that we sometimes allow ourselves to get into, where we are angry at a person that we love so dearly. And we finally realize <clears throat> later on that we're not angry at the person. We're angry at the disease. But at the time, you can't separate it, and that's the hell of it. So if anybody here is in that same situation, for God's sake, get rid of it. Now, don't let it go. Don't let it go. Because it's something over which you have absolutely no control, unless you're willing to do something about it. And if you can, as I see it today, if I had been able, in the beginning of his moving this thing when it didn't, the head wasn't working. And I'd get so angry at him, I wanted to kill him. Now that's a terrible thing. It's a man I love better than anything in the world. But you can. You can get yourself into that awful anger at what is happening that you wish you could stop and you can't stop it. So, if that will help anybody, then I am willing to tell you this story. But let me tell you, Sue, about my children before I quit. Because that's quite a thing myself, uh, that you have to go through, too. And it's something that I think Chuck would have given a million dollars to do something about if he could have, but he couldn't. He and uh, Richard had a little trouble getting along, as I told you, when they were growing up, because... Uh, Richard never knew anything but drunkenness when he was growing up. And uh, that is not good for any child. And it made a, 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 the situation such that it was difficult for him to come out of that. And then some of you have heard me tell of the time that we went to Europe to visit Richard when he was uh, playing Hamlet in London. And we went over there, and uh, he and we finally went down to, can't even think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And we uh, we got together, the uh, three of us, and for the first time in many, many years, Richard had an opportunity to sit and talk to his father. And uh, I think they straightened out many of the difficulties that they had with each other. It was very difficult for Chuck to open up and tell Richard all of the things that he had been feeling. And it was very difficult for Richard to open up and tell Chuck the things that he had been feeling. But I think that they got together much better on that trip than they had ever done before. And in the meantime, of course, I was... uh, doing a whale of a lot of praying <laughs> in the uh, trying to stay out of the middle. That's one of the things that I would let me say something about that before I go any further because if there are any mothers here or fathers too for that matter that are getting in between a couple of people trying to straighten things out and uh, make them see what they're doing and hadn't you better shouldn't you if I were you, I would not. Don't do it. Don't do it. For God's sake, let them alone. Love them and put them lovingly in God's hands and leaving them there. And allow them at least the dignity 
to find their own answers in their own time, in their own way. Because it takes a heck of a lot of dignity to be able to do that, you see. And it uh, is something you can do if you're willing. Sometimes we aren't willing, and uh, we make a mess out of things because we get in there and stir up the pot, and then it all goes to hell in a handbasket, and uh, it's no good. But they finally came to a point where they could become friends again, I think, and I think it was in Italy that that actually happened, and uh, it was remarkable to see it happen, and I had sense enough, thank God, to stay back and not try to interfere. And I think for the first time, they became friends. Now, that's a heck of a long time, because by this time, of course, Richard was grown man, and uh, that uh, has colored his life considerably, and uh, it has certainly colored Bill's. And if I, I had so hoped to bring Bill and Cassandra with me to this thing today, but they had already had guests, out-of-town guests coming to their home and could not come. But I hope next year to take both of them with me because Bill is the alcoholic. He's my eldest, and he's one of the most beautiful men you'd ever care to see. And he looks... <laughs> this just kills me. <laughs> he looks a lot like Chuck. <laughs> And uh, Richard, unfortunately, looks more like me. And uh, they're a couple of good-looking kids, and they're kind of sweet and nice, and they've been awful good to me. And uh, it's taken time. It's taken a lot of doing on both our parts. It's taken a whale of a lot of letting go. And if I don't leave anything with you today, but to be able to let go with love, is the bottom line. Because if you can do that, it's amazing what can happen. And it finally, little by little by little, you see, you can't put a timing on this thing. That's what drives most of us crazy. We uh, say, but how long is it going to take? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All I know is that eventually things began to turn around, and eventually we began to get back together. Eventually we began to become friends again. Eventually we could see that we have loved each other the whole time, but we were off in different directions. And it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of doing. It takes a lot of willingness to stand off and keep your big, fat mouth shut. <laughs> believe me. <laughs> and uh, I had to learn that the hard way, believe me. It wasn't the easy way. But it's been remarkable to watch the things that have changed with those kids because, uh, as you all know, Richard is doing so well. And Bill is doing so well, too. And he's in his third marriage. But it's taken three. <laughs> That's not easy to see, believe me. And it takes a lot of patience with Mama, believe me. And uh, 
But Bill is uh, married to a gal that I am very, very fond of. I, yeah, I'm very, very fond of the first one, but that one, he was drinking all the time, so it, uh, that one didn't work out. And he, finally, they got divorced. So she divorced him. That's what happened. And, uh, <laughs> then he got another one, and, uh, <laughs> 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 if you want to know the truth, I just plain don't like her. <laughs> Uh, that one finally ended, too. <laughs> and he was drinking very, very hard when that happened. And I finally, uh, one day I asked uh, Dick to come up and talk to me, or Bill to come up and talk to me. And I said, uh, Bill, why don't you go and see uh, Johnny? You all know Johnny, and all of you have heard him talk, I'm sure. Johnny and I have been good friends for a lot of years. And I've watched him go through some very difficult times himself. And, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Bill, I thought maybe Bill would come to, uh, to, uh, us, but he didn't. He went to Johnny finally. And, uh, Johnny said to him, well, I'm to see you, brother. How have you been? He said, I've been expecting you for a long, long time. <laughs> so, anyway, he did a lot for Bill. And, uh, Bill has grown into a very, very beautiful man, and I'm so proud of him. I don't know what to do. But uh, then, I, of course, I have, Bill has three children, and he has a girl and two sons. And uh, they're, uh, <laughs> they're a little difficult, a little difficult. Uh, the two boys. One of them lives way up in Santa Barbara, and uh, I don't see a great deal of him, but he's an awful sweet guy, but he doesn't know how to handle money. But if that's the worst thing that ever happens to him, why, that's fine. He's not an alcoholic. But the younger one, uh, <laughs> he's having some problems with that, but he's living on his uh, stepmother's, uh, stepfather's boat. I think his mother's married again. I have more changes in my family than I have trouble keeping up with them, you know. And, uh, but this younger one is, uh, is just a doll. He's the sweetest thing that ever lived, but oh, he loves to drink. So, uh, <laughs> but his day will come too if we just let him, let him alone with a lot of love and allow him the dignity to find his own answers in his own time and his own way. So the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, is that we can take our grandchildren. I have a granddaughter, as you know, that's been having a very, very difficult time. She's a beautiful girl, but she's, uh, <laughs> she'd kill me if she heard me say this. I don't think she's an alcoholic. I think she's a dope addict. That was her, uh, and she also suffers from bulimia. Do any of you know what bulimia is? Where they eat and eat and eat and go throw it up? And uh, she's a strange girl. I have difficulty getting acquainted with her. 
She acts as though she loves me, but I have that feeling. Do any of you mothers know what I'm talking about? That she could just at you, you know? She doesn't like you too well. Because she knows that I know what she's, where she's coming from, you see? That's trouble. And uh, so I have to take my hands off of her, too, and allow her the dignity to find her answers in her time, in her way, because I know it's something I can't do anything about. To all intents and purposes, she's gone to Johnny, and she has joined his program there and uh, is very active in that meeting. Oh, just how well she's doing, I'm the faintest idea, but I have to, at least as I said before, allow her that privilege to find her own answers in her way, which is definitely not my way. And love her in spite of what she's doing, and that's the bottom line, and it's tough, because sometimes they're not very lovable. And I think all of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So then I guess you have to look through the outer symbol and see who that to God's child who doesn't yet know how to live comfortably and peacefully and joyously with themselves yet, but who will if you and I will let go enough with love to allow them that privilege to find their own answers in their own way in their own time. And in the meantime, what's happened to me? I'm having the ball. <laughs> Something happened to me because I uh, I suffered as long as I could. I beat myself over the head for a long time over the things that I was not very nice about before Chuck left. But I knew if I thought about it properly, I knew that he knew where I was coming from, you see. And he knew that I was going around this way and seeing the sickness instead of the man. And this is a danger that you can go through if you're not awfully careful because this is a man that I love better than anything in the world. Great, big, handsome guy. <laughs> I wish I could tell you a few things about him. <laughs> We had quite a love affair, I'm telling you. <laughs> and I just I idolized him. But the other thing got in between us. And I wish that it could have straightened out before he left. But I think I pretty well got myself in a state of mind and being now that you people, you see, have helped me find. And that's what this program is all about. Because I couldn't have found it without you. But you have been kind enough and loving enough and charitable enough, if you want to put it that way, to keep me busy enough that I don't have time to sit home and feel sorry for myself anymore. I haven't got the time nor the effort to feel sorry for myself anymore because if you can keep loving me as I love you, nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop me. Because I am happy with you, I am at peace with you, and I hope that you'll keep me busy from now on. I love you very much. God bless you. Thank you.